Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. Donald Trump on various occasions had ordered us to gas, electrify, and shoot innocent migrants at the border. Now, the president may rightfully think that our border security wasn't up to snuff, but it's not legal (laughs) to shoot, electrify, and gas innocent women and children that are coming across the border to the United States, the vast majority of whom are merely seeking to come here for a better life. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Miles Taylor, who was thrust into the national spotlight after revealing himself to be the anonymous author of the New York Times op-ed titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. At the time of the op-ed, Miles worked in a senior role at the Department of Homeland Security and decided he had to warn the country about the chaotic and even criminal behavior of President Trump. Now, in the wake of the 2020 election, Miles and a group of Republicans are putting pressure on their party to reform and to renounce their allegiance to Donald Trump. Miles, welcome to Burn the Boats. Ken, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you. Uh, we have to start with the op-ed because although it wasn't really that long ago in real years, in political times, it uh, it was a lifetime. So set the stage for us. <laughs> Where right. were you? Why'd you write it? And what were the immediate repercussions? Yeah, well, I mean, look, um, from the get-go, I think everyone who went into the Trump administration recognized that the president, at a minimum, was unprepared to assume that office. I mean, there was a widespread feeling among members of his cabinet, especially the national security cabinet, uh, that he really wasn't familiar with, you know, the government bureaucracy, the departments and agencies that he would be assuming control over, and that folks needed to go in to really stabilize the ship. Now, I say that's at a minimum because there were a number of other folks early on who, as they got exposed to the president, felt that, um, in many ways, he was unqualified for the office and were pretty scared about what they saw. So in the first year of the administration, I had the same sort of experience, um, witnessing a president who was totally disinterested in the details, You know, wouldn't read, wouldn't pay attention, could not focus in meetings and made decisions in a very ad hoc uh, and sort of reckless manner. So you know, like John Kelly and you know, Rex Tillerson and, you know, you name it, Jim Mattis over at the Pentagon, um, you know, I started to become much more worried about uh, the president's stability and and also the way the executive branch was being run. By year two, uh, the second year of the Trump administration is when I published the op-ed, I'd say things had gone from bad to batshit crazy. I mean, just an absolute nightmare. There was no process at the White House. It was total dysfunction and chaos. And it was resulting in truly horrible decisions. One of them being the decision to move forward with Jeff Sessions' family separation policy over at the Justice Department, which then was thrust upon the Department of Homeland Security. And while at the time I wasn't doing immigration policy, I was counterterrorism and intelligence advisor to the secretary, and I just stepped into the role of deputy chief of staff, and I watched this slow-moving train wreck, something that was so obviously a disaster, that was so obviously going to turn 
into a humanitarian crisis, just move forward anyway, because Trump was hellbent on having it done. Uh, that really spooked me, that these so-called guardrails that we had in the administration were not working, and the president was moving forward with very inhumane policies, regardless of what advisors were telling him. So that pushes me right up to September of 2018, when I reached out to the New York Times to publish the piece. Now, the the proximate cause night a couple of nights before I submitted that to them was that uh, I was in Australia with the Homeland Security Secretary. We were having sensitive meetings with our intelligence partners, the Five Eyes intelligence community. And I get a phone call in the middle of the night from the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. It's like three in the morning in Australia. And he says, who the hell lowered the flags? And I said, I, what, are, what are you talking about? Now, John McCain had died just days before. And the Department of Homeland Security traditionally says that all flags nationwide should be lowered when, when a you know, senior statesman dies or uh, you know, another national figure, a former president, that sort of thing. And so we had done that. We'd put out the message that all federal buildings should lower the flags to half staff in honor of Senator McCain. And so the voice on the other end of the phone says, the president wants the flags raised back up. He does not want to honor McCain. He wants them raised back up. <laughs> I said, well, hold on a second. Let me make some phone calls and just make sure that we put out that order. But you understand if the president wants us to do that, he needs to call personally. And if he does, you're going to see some resignations from this department. You know, I, I had been someone who had admired McCain for a very long time. He was one of the first people I met when I came to Washington, D.C., someone who I'd worked with when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill and, and a man that I admired, one of my few remaining heroes. So we have these calls back and forth in the middle of the night. And ultimately, John Kelly convinces the president to let the flags stay at half staff. They issue a White House order that says they should go down. Trump was very reluctant about that. He hated John McCain. And I'd been noodling on the idea of saying something. And after that episode, I remember at that point, it was probably six in the morning in Australia. I popped up. I went over to my desk at the hotel. And in about 30 or 45 minutes, I wrote an op-ed that essentially said, look, this administration is in total chaos. It's operating on two tracks. One track is whatever crazy idea the president cooks up on any given day. The other track is the bureaucracy, is the government trying to function and stay stable. And really the only check on this man, sure, there's good people trying to keep things in order, but the only check on him ultimately uh, is the people themselves. And so I wanted to put that message out there. And the last thing I'll add before going back to you, Ken, is there's one clear reason why I did it anonymously. That's because I'd learned that Donald Trump is a master at the politics of personal destruction and personal distraction. He loves to attack a person and not an idea. So by submitting that op-ed without attribution, he had to contend with the message that his own administration was opposed to his leadership. And I wanted him to confront that. Although I said not long after that, that ultimately I would come out under my own name. And I think that's important to take ownership. Um, and I did so before the 2020 election. So we could talk very candidly about who Trump was. But at that point in time, I wanted him to grapple with the message rather than distract from it. Well, I definitely want to talk about your decision to to publish anonymously. But I want to ask first, if you draw a distinction or if at the time you drew a distinction between policies and actions that were, as you just described, inhumane, ill-advised, I'll add disrespectful and petty, do you draw a distinction between bad policy and unlawful or unconstitutional policy? Yeah, absolutely. And there should be. I mean, look, there's a misperception that there was some sort of resistance in the Trump administration that defied the lawful orders of a commander in chief. That's not what happened. There was not a cabal of people saying, 
this is a lawful order, but I don't like it. And therefore, you know, we're going to subvert it and be treasonous and not implement the president's orders. And look, for better or for worse, Donald Trump and Mike Pence were the only two names on the ballot to run the executive branch. Uh, He was the duly elected legitimate president of the United States. And there has to be reverence for that office. By the same token, it's incumbent upon the president to act according to the law and consistent with the balance of power. There were a number of decisions that the president made or orders that he gave to us that were patently illegal. And that's when we grew very concerned. So for instance, that year prior to releasing the op-ed, Donald Trump on various occasions had ordered us to gas, electrify, and shoot innocent migrants at the border, civilians. Now, the president may rightfully think that our border security wasn't up to snuff, but it's not legal (laughs) to shoot, electrify, and gas innocent women and children that are coming across the border to the United States, the vast majority of whom are merely seeking to come here for a better life. It was moments like that where we grew very alarmed about the president's disposition. And there's various channels in which those concerns were raised. I mean, the only answer isn't to just go pop off and write an anonymous op-ed, right? You refer things to the general counsel, you refer things to inspectors general, uh, you notify people on Capitol Hill. Uh, there's there's a system for these sorts of things. But, um, but we could go through a, a long litany of concerns that we had about Trump trying to do things that weren't just unethical or inhumane, uh, but illegal. And that's ultimately why I resigned from the administration, is he gave us an illegal order to seal the U.S. border and then said he would offer us pardons if we went to jail. That, to me, was a bridge too far, and, and so I quit. When you say that Trump issued these orders, um, for example, the order to electrify gas and shoot unarmed migrants, I am picturing one of these rants in the Oval Office uh, directed at, at his subordinates. Was it like that, or were these codified? Were these written down and submitted formally? Well, thankfully, most of these you know, people wanted to save their own asses and so would not end up in, in written form because, you know, the, the aide that turns that kind of edict into an executive order uh, doesn't want to be the one who's got emails that can be FOIA'd, you know, implementing an illegal act. So a lot of these things were stopped while they were just, you know, verbal fantasies of the president. But they also were not one-time edicts. I mean, in the instance of the president wanting to shoot migrants at the border to dissuade them from coming across illegally, he said that multiple times, repeatedly, uh, in phone calls and in-person meetings with us in the Oval Office. And he got specific. He said, look, I don't want to kill him, but let's just shoot him in the leg so we can slow him down and so that other migrants can see that they'll get shot if they try to come to the border. And I remember one of the times the secretary and I were on the way to New York, uh, I think for a, a big cybersecurity conference with the vice president. And Trump is seeing a caravan coming towards the border, a caravan, caravan of migrants, most of whom, again, innocent people, probably a small number of criminals in there, which CBP is very good at identifying. And he said, we need to slow him down. We need to shoot him in the legs. And the secretary was just aghast that he was still saying this and, and called Secretary Mattis at the Pentagon and said, you need to call the president and explain to him how use of force works. And they did, and they shut it down. And then incredibly, Trump went on TV later that day and said, if the migrants throw rocks, we'll use rifles. And um, he ignored it. Now, we didn't go forward with implementing that order. Again, that would be a violation of 
use of force inhumane and, and psychotic, quite frankly. But it was those types of episodes that the president would repeatedly go back to, Ken. And even though the functionaries of government didn't act on many of those verbal fantasies, your words, can you explain to us uh, from like a an executive theory point of view why it is still dangerous? Yeah, I mean, look, here's the reality. Uh, we were very, very lucky in a lot of cases that the president didn't go forward with ill-advised or illegal orders. That was primarily because his subordinates talked him out of it, refused to implement them. But that's not to say that there aren't people who would have gone forward with some of those orders. As a matter of fact, towards the end of the administration, Donald Trump systematically dismantled this apparatus that I call the steady state, right? You know, Trump would call it the deep state and say, you know, these are people trying to subvert government. I called it the steady state because really it was a group of advisors who had been in government before in various capacities who understood that there were things the president was trying to do that he couldn't and that they needed to advise him and kind of steady the ship of state, if you will. If you can give Trump credit for anything, it's that he has a well-honed radar for people who have a conscience. And the folks who would tell him what he needed to hear rather than what he wanted to hear, he would identify them and remove them from the administration. So by the time you get into year three of the Trump administration, a lot of these folks have been sacked or pushed out. And Trump is increasingly putting in place the folks he's realized will implement you know, almost any order or go along with his edicts. And, and this isn't you know, hypothesis here. I mean, Trump had said to us multiple times in person and later publicly how much he liked having people in acting roles is because he realized if someone wasn't confirmed in their post and they were in an acting capacity, they were much more likely to suck up to the president because they wanted to get nominated for their job and get it permanently. He recognized that. And he said that to us. He said, I really like my actings because they do what they're told. And by the end of the Trump administration, you had a historic number of people in acting capacities who were willing to go forward with ill-advised policies. Everything from what you saw with the crackdown against nationwide protests over race to what we saw happening, the show of force we saw happening in Portland and elsewhere, uh, you had folks that were just willing to say yes rather than to challenge him in the end. And that becomes very dangerous. It means the functions of government, everything from protecting the American people to issuing social security checks are at risk from the instability. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, the last thing I'll add on that point, Ken, is when I publicly came out against Trump in 2020, the biggest point I made was that not only were his fantasies about abusing the levers of power uh, meant to benefit himself politically, but they also deeply distracted from the work we needed to be doing to protect the country. So at DHS, you know, immigration is only a, one slice of the pie. That department is responsible for protecting the nation from cyber threats, from terrorists, from nation state interference, from Russia and China, and on down the list, natural disasters. But the president saw that one slice of the pie, immigration, as the whole pie, and was clinically obsessed with only talking about that. And it literally meant that day to day, our ability to manage DHS atrophied. And as a result, I think the American people were in greater danger. Enough attention was not paid to cyber threats. The president never paid attention to cyber threats. Not enough attention was paid to counterterrorism. Not enough attention was paid to the threat from Russia and China. In fact, the president actively urged us not to pay attention to the threat from Russia. So I felt that on a day-to-day -day basis, he was subverting our homeland security efforts and the country was in greater danger as a result. 
Talk to us about the dilemma of serving within an administration like this that is pushing all kinds of ill-advised and, as you described, illegal policies, but finding yourself one of the few people who might be able to keep the worst excesses from becoming reality. How do you make that calculation? How do you balance the need to be one of the few sane people left against the moral requirement to resign when things cross a certain line? It's it's a really good question. And, and I don't claim to have all the right answers. In fact, plenty of people can look at my story and, and judge it for themselves and say, you know, he should have left sooner or he shouldn't have gone in. But it's in a way sort of a, a moral choose your own adventure. And I think it's a very important one for people to play out. You know, I don't, care about burnishing my own credentials, but I think people should use my story as a way to ask themselves, what would the line be for them? Because we're all facing these moral quandaries because we're voting for these members of Congress, these senators, these candidates for the office of the presidency who have views like Donald Trump. So it's really on all of us to ask these same moral questions. In my case, there was a set of several. The very first was whether to oppose Donald Trump or not. That was a no-brainer when he was running for president. I was working on Capitol Hill and House for House leadership at the time when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. And Donald Trump was number 17 of 17 candidates in the primary that I was with. In fact, I helped draft something that behind the scenes Paul Ryan called the Trump inoculation plan. And it was a GOP strategy that we released so that if Trump became the nominee, you know, we kind of would force him to have a platform and a conservative platform because we were all worried he wasn't a conservative. So that was my first choice is, you know, stay in house leadership and, and work against Trump behind the scenes. Was glad to do it. When he won, a lot of those same people from Paul Ryan on down who'd panicked about Trump uh, getting the nomination, thought he had no chance of winning, now had to face the prospect of, do you help him and try to help him keep the government stable or do you just completely oppose him? And that was a no brainer as well. Was, was, you know, Paul Ryan, all the committee chairmen said, look, he's now the Republican president. He's the commander in chief. The guy could do a lot of damage if he doesn't go in with smart people. So we started actively working with his transition team to help them identify good cabinet secretaries. Now, at that point, I didn't envision going into the Trump administration at all and was heartened to see that he picked some really good people to be in the cabinet. One of those was John Kelly, uh, a man that I'd gotten to know while working on Capitol Hill, four-star Marine general, um, outstanding credentials, and he went in to, to be Secretary of Homeland Security. When Kelly and team reached out to ask if I'd come on board, then I faced another conundrum. And it was, well, you know, can I do more good than harm by going into this operation? And in that case, they had a very, very thin bench at DHS. There were not a ton of people who had gone in who knew how to do counterterrorism, intelligence policy. And so I decided to, to go in with Kelly and try to help him get DHS into a good place. Now, I had a friend ask me at the time, you know, why would you go in? Trump is crazy. And my answer was, because he's crazy. <laughs> because we need people who are going to go into this administration who know what they're doing, rather than the island of misfit advisors that Trump had brought with him. And I'd met a lot of those folks up at Trump Tower during the transition and thought, oh my God, these people do not know how to go in and run a government. And so, you know, that was the first moral decision. But then as time went on, exactly as you asked, Ken, at first, we were able to put a lot of bad ideas back in the box. It was like Jack in the Box or Whack-A-Mole. Trump would call and say, I want to pull out of NATO. And so everyone would rush to the White House to have a meeting with him and convince him not to pull out of NATO. And then it would work. And so for a time, for about the first year, a lot of those really bad decisions got put back in the box. 
But by the time we got into year two, uh, Trump really started to subvert his advisors. He would either fire them or just go around them or tweet things into existence. I mean, one example had been we'd been telling him he should not pull U.S. troops out of Syria because there were active ISIS terror plots that our troops were trying to disrupt. And Trump didn't want to hear it. And so one day in December, he just tweeted it into existence. I was sitting in John Kelly's office. John Bolton was there, the national security advisor. We were talking about something else. And then we look up and we see on the TV screen that the president has tweeted, we're pulling out from Syria. Did he consult John Bolton? No. John Kelly? No. Did he consult his secretary of defense, Jim Mattis? No. We all found out from a tweet that he sent from his bedroom in the residence. That was really terrifying. So the point at which saying no to the president no longer becomes enough is when I think folks need to decide to resign, right? When, when you can't contain the bad stuff from within, then it's your duty to leave and not just to leave, but to go tell the truth and to go speak publicly. Now, there have been some folks who've said that's treasonous to, to work for a president and then leave and, and then oppose him. Uh, I'd take a totally different view. Teddy Roosevelt actually said it was treasonous not to speak the truth about the president when the truth needs to be told. And so I felt like it was incumbent upon me once I quit to actively start speaking out and to get others to do the same in our own names. Because as I noted before, Ken, when I initially released the op-ed, I still thought it was important to stay in the administration to stabilize the ship because we knew who was going to replace us. Quite literally, the White House had floated us a list of the people who would take our jobs if we didn't do what the president said. And those people were dangerous people. They were people who had no experience running an agency like the Department of Homeland Security. And we were in this impossible predicament, the president threatening to fire us because we were saying no so much, but us also knowing who would replace us and so needing to stay in. Uh, that was not an easy decision to make. Do I wish I'd resigned sooner? Yes. There was actually a period just before the midterm elections in 2018 when I tried to get a number of members of the cabinet to resign in unison. I wanted them to resign in mass to prove a point about Trump. And they were very close to doing it. The only reason they didn't is because they were worried if they did it, it would cost us the midterm elections, the Republicans, that is, that we would lose the House. And Trump would use that as an excuse to discredit those people who resigned. So everyone kept their powder dry. And then what happened? Right after the midterms, Trump started to sack a number of those cabinet secretaries systematically before they could resign. So at, at that point, the whole thing was falling apart. And I felt like I needed to quit, get out of there and speak the truth. So I left. I wrote a longer form you know, statement against the president, a book called A Warning that was basically a message to the American people that I said, look, I was wrong in my original op-ed. The guardrails did not hold. These unelected bureaucrats like me and John Kelly and other people, we're not going to be able to protect you. Our only defense against the president's erratic impulses are the people themselves deciding not to reelect him uh, and then decided to come out in, in my own name subsequently after releasing the book to really tell those stories and, and to have them stand on their own two feet. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. You've described the steady state, uh, not the deep state, but the steady state as that cadre of of seasoned professionals who provide advice with a level of experience and, and maturity required to keep the gears of, of government running. Did your experience watching that be dismantled one person at a time leave you despairing for the institutional strength of of our government or the fact that it took several years leave you somewhat encouraged uh you know i I hate to be the cynic ken um but i'm gonna i'm gonna go with the the former rather than the latter it was dispiriting on a number of different levels one from an institutional standpoint that uh, that the president had found out how to get around the various checks and and really wanted to abuse his power for political purposes. And, and again, that's another thing that I don't say lightly, but the president would make decisions on the basis of how it would impact him politically rather than how it would impact the people. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One I've talked about publicly is the wildfires in California. We had these egregious wildfires sweeping the state. People were losing their homes. People were losing their lives. And the president called and told us, do not distribute wildfire aid, emergency FEMA aid to California. What was the reason he gave us? The reason he gave us is that Gavin Newsom, then governor, didn't like him and was a Democrat and the people of California didn't vote for him. That's why the president didn't want to give money to wildfire victims is because it was a blue state and not a red state. Uh, What do you do in that moment? I mean, as the institutional safeguards start to bend and crumple, I mean, he has the authority technically to deny aid for whatever reasons he wants. That's actually not illegal, but it's very, very wrong. Um, So I was really dispirited at that. Now, the good news is ultimately he was persuaded not to do that, but an order was drafted. It just didn't get sent. And then on the personal level, I'd say it's twofold, Ken. One was that more people didn't speak out sooner. And two was that even once they were fired or resigned, that they then didn't come out and tell the truth. Now, keep in mind, most of these major figures you saw in the Trump administration, I was in rooms with them personally when they said, not only is Donald Trump reckless, they would say things like, he's a danger to the fabric of our republic, <laughs> and, then, and then say nothing. That was really disheartening to me, because who the hell is Miles Taylor? Who the hell cares who Miles Taylor is? And that was my thought at the time which was, you know, look, these other people are the big names of the administration. They are the ones that should be going out and they've got the credibility to say to the American people, you know, I'm a cabinet secretary that's been confirmed by the Senate and I've seen this. And they didn't do that. And so after I 
couldn't persuade these folks to come out and say the things they've been saying in private is when I decided that I would unmask myself and, you know, go do it publicly and try to recruit others. The one heartening thing I'll say is although we didn't recruit very many of these cabinet members, we recruited in the election year the largest number of ex-administration officials in U.S. history to oppose a president that they served. But most of them were names that folks had never heard of. They were folks sort of at my level uh, in the government who decided to join our team and speak out. And I'm forever proud of those people and grateful uh, for their public service. But I still think there's a stain on the reputations of a lot of the folks that didn't speak up when they should have. In that second letter you wrote, identifying yourself as the author of the anonymous op-ed, you invoked Lincoln's first inaugural address, the one in which he appeals to the better angels uh, of our nature. He said, we must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. It's a nice sentiment. But of course, a couple of months after that, the Civil War breaks out and Mm -hmm. the nation is riven. Was your choice of that quote at all poetic irony? Was it foreboding? Do you think we are on the same path? Well, you know, um, I really hate to say it, but when I wrote the book, A Warning, the warning was really twofold. The immediate warning was uh, Donald Trump poses a danger to the country and Americans should not reelect him. And I'm glad the American people heeded that part of the warning. But there was a second warning in there. And that was if we as a people don't fix the discord in our discourse, uh, that we will be forever uh, divided and America won't see its 300th birthday, uh, let alone its 275th. I'll raise your Lincoln quote that I had cited with another one that really gets me. And it's been cited a lot lately. And it's Ulysses S. Grant. He was asked, I think about 10 years after the Civil War, about you know what could divide the nation again. And he said something to the effect of, if there's ever a contest that challenges our national existence in the future, the dividing line won't be the Mason and Dixon line, which was, of course, the line between the northern and southern states, but it will be between patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other side. Now, I saw a poll the other day that something like half of Republicans believe in the QAnon conspiracy. If that's not superstition and ignorance, I don't know what is. And we are talking about the mainstreaming of these radicalized conspiracy theories. That's what's really, really alarming to me. So I don't think we've addressed the discord in our discourse. I think it's gotten worse. And now it's jumped the track from vitriol into violence. And I'll cite another poll for you. The University of Chicago did a study sometime within the last month or so that found that 9% of Americans believe that political violence is justified, including to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Let me put that into context for you. 21 million Americans believe that Trump should be violently reinstalled into the White House. Now, it sounds hyperbolic to talk about civil war, especially in the 21st century. We think of that as an anachronism. We think of ourselves as having grown beyond that level of discord, but we haven't. And polls like that show some very, very disturbing figures. And in the same study, they found 
that something like 6 million Americans are either now a part of domestic extremist groups and militias or have a friend or family member that is a part of an extremist group or a militia. That's a massive increase over the domestic terrorism numbers we were tracking when I was in the Trump administration. In fact, at any given time, the FBI's best estimate when I was there was that they had roughly 100,000 subjects of interest that could be tied to domestic extremist groups, uh, you know, that intended to commit violence, right? These aren't people whose political views are objectionable, and that's why the FBI is following. It's people who've talked about maybe using guns to go kill others to further their political ideology. So roughly 100,000. Now we're talking in the millions. We've seen more than a tenfold increase in membership in those extremist organizations. And the political rhetoric from people like Donald Trump and those who've enabled him are encouraging folks to go down that path. So yes, I am very worried. I think it is the number one national security threat to the United States right now is internal discord and not threats from any foreign adversary. Yeah, the China threat's high. Yeah, the Russia threat's high. Yeah, the terrorism threat's high. But it's quite frankly, the internal divisions that are the biggest threat to our national security. Well, you've put a finer point on it than that in previous interviews. It's not just the internal division you point to. It is the Republican Party. I'll quote you. The number one national security threat I've ever seen in my life to this country's democracy is the party that I'm in, the Republican Party. It is the number one national security threat to the United States of America. Yeah. Still maintain that. <laughs> I got trolled really hard, Ken, for saying that, but people needed to listen to specifically what I was saying. Uh, you know, I, I had a number of folks, good friends, you know, that work in the national security community and have alongside me message me afterwards and say, come on, are you serious? You know, what about Al-Qaeda bringing down the Twin Towers on 9-11? Uh, there's no doubt. But look, Al-Qaeda at no point, even at its height, posed the same danger to our fundamental democratic institutions as a radicalized Republican party has. In fact, I can't think of a point where we got close to the brink of undermining our democracy uh, because of the fight against Al-Qaeda. There was debates about privacy and civil liberties, but by and large, our institutions held strong and we defeated that adversary. By contrast, what we're seeing in terms of a, a previously sitting president trying to overturn an election is a fundamental threat to our democratic institutions and has undermined confidence nationwide in the legitimacy of the democratic process. That's a vastly bigger long-term and generational threat when compared to an adversary who uh, is trying to divide us with violence. In fact, if anything, terrorists unified this country in the fight against them. Uh, Donald Trump had an option after the election, and that would have been to concede and not propagate the big lie. And we wouldn't see nearly the levels today of lack of confidence in our democratic process if he had appropriately transitioned the presidency. But now the after effects of that episode are going to be felt for years, for decades, again, for a generation. That's a big danger to this country. So yeah, I'm still a Republican, but I firmly believe that the people who are in charge of our party right now pose a somewhat existential threat to our democracy as we know it. And the party itself needs to reform or in some way be replaced. And my objective in the near term is to do what we can to elect rational Republicans and to kick out the radical ones uh, who want to undermine our country and its institutions. I want to go back to that Grant quote, your fellow Republican, when he talked about superstition, ambition, and ignorance, because I've, I've increasingly seen it pop up. 
you illustrated how this growing belief in the QAnon conspiracy captures superstition and ignorance, but the trifecta has to include ambition. Can you talk about the ringleaders? Can you talk about those who know better, but for purely political reasons, for reasons of careerism and ambition, are feeding the other two pillars, superstition and ignorance? I mean, it doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah, no, 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 that's right. I mean, we'll go beyond Trump because this isn't really all about Trump anymore. I mean, it's uh, there's a thousand little Trumps out there who think they've learned a, a lesson from him and it's the wrong lesson. But the lesson they think they've learned is be more like Trump and you know, you'll be in office. And they've sort of fed those populist factional impulses across the country. So there's a thousand little Trumps who say what they're saying because it will advance their careers. I talk to a lot of members of Congress still. Um, I'm still friends with a lot of members of Congress. And behind the scenes, I'd say probably half the Republican conference on the Hill still thinks Trump is crazy. People who are trying to mimic him are crazy. But they're scared to speak out because they're scared of either A, losing their jobs and getting a primary challenge, or B, losing their lives. And that may sound like hyperbole, but they've got plenty of reason to worry. The total magnitude of threats against public servants today is unlike anything that we've ever seen. Uh, I've talked to multiple current former members of Congress who have gotten their concealed carries, have their wives and their children carrying guns because they're worried about getting attacked for running afoul of Donald Trump. I mean, in my case, when I came out against him, I had to have a a full-time security detail. I had restraining orders against stalkers. I had to move locations. And no one has to play the violin for me. I I knew that that's how it was going to be because the discourse is so vitriolic and people are so angry. But, you know, that's manipulating how our system works. I mean, Liz Cheney herself said it when she said during the impeachment vote, there were members who would have voted to impeach, but they were scared for their safety. So quite literally, the intimidation is working. The intimidation is encouraging people to not act the way they otherwise would. That's very scary. And part of that is because of the ambition of people who want to climb and embrace Trumpism and expand it and use it to further their careers. And they see that anyone who opposes them is a threat. And so they engage in intimidating tactics. And then the other side that I'll point back to is when I was going around trying to get ex-Trump cabinet secretaries to speak out publicly. You know, some did. You know, John Bolton spoke out very vocally against the president. John Kelly had spoken out and others. But some of those that remained quiet, one of the top reasons that they told me they supported our cause from afar but didn't want to lend their name is that they said they were worried about uh, losing their jobs or future prospects. What if Donald Trump got reelected again in the future? And uh, what if there was more opportunity? You know, they, they would lose out on those chances to further their careers. That was pretty sickening to me. So ambition is absolutely allowing this madness to continue. And the only way to thwart it, frankly, is I'll I'll quote a friend of mine, Alex Vindman, who had testified, of course, in uh, Trump's first impeachment. Uh, You know, Vindman said uh, to me the other day, you know, look, Miles, the point of intimidation is to silence. And the only way to counteract that is to not be silent. And it sounds very simplistic, but that's not just something for people in Washington to heed. That's every American's responsibility, because in our own communities, when we're debating these political candidates and who's deserving of public office, the intimidation has worked and has silenced a rational majority from speaking with their neighbors and their friends at barbecues. Um, I mean, what do you do if you go to a barbecue and half the people there think Joe Biden is a reptilian humanoid 
and that, you know, the government is secretly being manipulated, you know, in the way that QAnon describes. Uh, do you speak out at the barbecue or do you just keep your mouth shut? I mean, it's tough. And so everyday Americans have to confront this problem if we're going to fix our, our democracy and get it back into a healthy state. Well, let's end on that hopeful note because I, I want you to describe what you are what you're up to now um, with the the Renew America movement and your efforts to try to bend this arc. Well, yeah. So we launched something this summer called the Renew America movement. It's an organization that's really meant to be a tribe for the politically tribeless at the moment. Now, like I said earlier, it's one thing to go against your tribe. You know, when you're at that barbecue with members of your tribe and everyone's a Republican, but you're the one Republican that doesn't think uh, these conspiracy theories are true. It's tough to say something because there's no strength in numbers and you're worried no one will back you up. Um, but like I said, I, I think that the numbers show that there's a, a silent majority in this country that's rational. And so there needs to be a tribe of the tribalists. And so what Renew America is trying to do is really create an identity uh, for you know, rational voters. Uh, renewers are people who want a common sense coalition in this country. Again, they're centrists. They're committed on principle and uh, and they want to you know see the country get to a better place. So what we're trying to do in the immediate is win elections. And by that, I mean, we're going to run rational Republicans against radical ones in primaries and, and really try to get the riffraff out of Congress. But then more broadly, we want to deepen the pro-democracy bench and recruit new candidates for office to run as either renew Republicans, to run as independents, and in some cases to run as Democrats, even though we're an organization that's primarily center-right leaders. Our board is former Republican governors, senators, congressmen, party leaders, cabinet secretaries. We want to see good Democrats elected too. A deeper pro-democracy bench is a deeper bench across the spectrum. And we would like to see extremes in the Democratic Party, think of the squad and AOCs of the world, also out of Congress and have a more rational uh, you know, membership in the House uh, and Senate. So that's what we're trying to do in the short term. In the long term, we want to really build out that renewer brand identity and have consumers, voters to be able to get together uh, and recognize that they're not alone in this fight. I mean, I'll leave you with this, Ken. A, a poll earlier this year from Pew showed that 50% of Americans now identify as independents. It was the highest number they've ever recorded. One half of the country now says, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, I'm an independent. And 25% respectively say they're Democrats or Republicans. So people are fed up with their democracy not giving them what they want. I mean, ironically, we've got choice and competition in everything we want. I can go online and order whatever I want right now and get a ride share from wherever and travel wherever I want. But the one place I don't have choice and competition is in my democracy, which is where I, I should have it. So in the longer term, what we really want to do as a movement is modernize the laws across the country to make democracy more responsive. The two big parties really do have a stranglehold over the process in their respective states. It's really hard for third party candidates or, or independents to run in those races and win. And so we want to break down those barriers to make sure that people simply have more choice. And if there's more choice in our democracy, we're going to end up with better options. So that's what we're trying to do in the long run is sort of break that big party monopoly over the system. Even though I'm a Republican, I want to see competition. I welcome competition. And there should be other parties that can emerge and run against us. But that's a generational project right there. But, um, you know, we've already seen that voters are excited about it. They're supportive of it. And things like ranked choice voting in Alaska have been passed. A number of other states are considering similar ballot initiatives. So I think this is going to be the big cause of the 21st century 
when it comes to government reform uh, is making sure that our system is responsive and that there's more choices. So hopefully we get there and hopefully the Renew America movement can uh, can help nudge us along the way a little faster. Well, I, I appreciate the effort, uh, but <laughs> as a Democrat, I would submit to you uh, for your reaction that equating extremism on the left among elected Democrats to the extremism we're seeing on the right among elected Republicans is not a fair comparison. Something uh, something has happened on the right that has so far deviated from the norms with appeals to violence and, um, you know, almost wishing for bloodshed in Madison Cawthorn's latest speech that I don't think it's a fair comparison to uh, to groups on, on the left. And I, th- and I think you're right, Ken. I mean, it's, you know, frankly, it's comparing apples and refrigerators um, <laughs> because the, the extremism we're seeing on my party's side is about whether or not our country will continue to operate the way it was designed as a democratic republic, <laughs> right? You know, the extremism on the left are debates about government's role in society and the fights that we've had. But right now, my party is posing an existential threat to this country. And that's why for Renew America, our priority overwhelmingly, like I said, is going to be defeating those radical Republicans and trying to get rational ones in. And, and look, we're going to support Democrats in those races uh, where those Democrats are our best hope to defeat those radicals. So, it, you know, look at uh, Arizona. If it's Captain Mark Kelly, a patriot, uh, running against a, a Trumper like Kelly Ward, we're going to be for Captain Mark Kelly, Democratic senator and a reasonable guy in that race. So, um, and we hope other people will choose to put country over party in this fight. We did it in this last election. The only reason Joe Biden won the presidency is because enough people put country over party, and the numbers show that moderate Republicans came out and put them over the edge in swing states. They need to do that again, and not just again, but again and again, until we get to a place where we have a GOP that's not trying to nuke our institutions. Well, Miles, thanks for coming on. We end uh, every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question, and I have a a guess, but you might surprise me uh, with your answer. What's the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? Uh... You know, that's a tough question. You know, I don't consider anything that I've done particularly brave. I think it just, look, I'm a small town kid from Indiana, and you're just kind of raised to speak up and say the right thing when something's wrong. Uh, I I guess, I guess the decision that uh, if if I gave you an answer, it would be to to stay in this fight after the 2020 election. You know, it, 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 it was bruising. I mean, you know, I lost my home and a marriage and my personal security and my finances and everything to take on that fight against Trump. But uh, after the January 6th insurrection, you know, I thought now's not the time to, you know, throw in the towel and and go back to the private sector. We've got to keep going. The fight's only just beginning. So that was a tough choice to make, but I have no regrets about it. and, And I hope other folks will join us as we run towards 22 and beyond. Thank you, Miles. It's been great having you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Miles for joining me. You can find Miles on Twitter at at MilesTaylorUSA. Make sure to check out his book, A Warning. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm joined by Chantelle Brown, the chairwoman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. She recently won a heated Democratic primary in Ohio's 11th Congressional District, which was seen as an indicator for the direction of the Democratic Party. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. 
Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.